to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton. Ah, yes, I am back with you all. Buck Sexton here. Thank you uh, so much for tuning in. Uh, Happy May Day, everybody, or uh, International Workers' Day, if you're of the socialist and uh, communist perspective on things. So I, I want to step back for a moment because I was out on Friday. I, I decided that I would take a day from the Freedom Hut. Uh, and I, I trust you all had a, had a fantastic time. Uh, but I, I took a day from the Freedom Hut so that I could go away, take a few days with uh, my girlfriend and go to uh, Puerto Rico. I, I thought, because I, I planned this well in advance, I thought, well, this would, this would be nice. It's a beautiful island in the tropics, and it will be uh, great to get some sun. And I'll come back to the Freedom Hut on May Day, reinvigorated, rejuvenated, you know, energized, ready to roll, ready to rumble. Uh, and I knew that also it would be right near the 100 days marks. So we'd have a ton of stuff to talk about, and, and we certainly do. I, I'm sitting here drowning in notes for today's show. I want to talk to you about... Oh, the budget deal, which, of course, we will. I want to talk to you about Obama's speeches and Michelle Obama's speeches, too, Barack and Michelle. Uh, the Brett Stevens column at The New York Times that got so much coverage over the weekend. The climate change marches, 300 of them across the country. What's going on in conservative media? The White House Correspondents' Dinner. We might make fun of that for a few minutes. I got so much I wanted to hit on. But before I can get to all that, I'm in Puerto Rico, and I'm, I've never been before, and I... I have to say, you know, it's a very lovely people, great food, and if it wasn't raining every day, which it was when I was there, I'm, I'm sure it's a, a great place to spend some time. And yet you think that you can escape politics and the world and and retreat to a beach. This is why the Freedom Hut, my friends, is a state of mind, because even when you go to a place where you could conceivably set up your own Freedom Hut, a lovely uh, thatched hut near the beach where you serve pina coladas perhaps or you grill fish and you have you know whatever maybe whatever your free your ideal freedom hut may be uh, the world has a way of finding you and the world has a way of inflicting itself on you and you and your reality so a, a few things uh, one is that both may day and international workers of the world unite and uh, leftist socialist protest movements in a sense, followed me to Puerto Rico. I'll get into that in a moment. And also, I saw what and and spoke to people about what a a real debt crisis feels like when you live through it, when it's clear you can't pay your bills anymore. I in in that way, the budget battle followed me on vacation for a few days, and I missed all of you. By the way, this is the problem with loving your job as much as I do and caring as much about what you do every day as as I do, and I'm sure as many of you do. You're away from it, and it's great, but there's a part of you that 
feels like there's so much to be done and you're missing out on. You have to force yourself to relax and enjoy. Um, and I certainly was able to do some of that, but two things came up. The first, let me deal with on May Day, and, and I want to talk to you more about May Day because I think it's, uh, and, and I, <laughs> I managed to walk through a May Day protest today uh, here in New York City. So I was, uh, the, the international workers movement, such as it is, uh, came up in my day-to-day today, not once but twice, but first on, on Puerto Rico. I was excited to come back here, as I said, and join you all in, in the Freedom Hut. A um, couple of days, a little rain didn't stop, didn't stop Mr. Buck here from, from enjoying himself and having a great time uh, down in Puerto Rico. Uh, but I'm told last night, before I'm supposed to come and fly back to the states, the, or I should say back to the, the 50 states, right? Puerto Rico, part of America, but a territory, not a state. Uh, but I'm supposed to fly back to the mainland uh, in the morning. And I'm told last night, well, you better get there really early. And I said, well, my flight's pretty early because, of course, I've got a show to do. I said, no, you better get there really early because there's a general strike going on. I find this out you know, yesterday in, in the evening. What do, you, what do you mean there's a, a general struggle? What is, I, I've heard of this term before, by the way. In fact, when I came on as a cub reporter, a, uh, a young, uh, aspiring conservative writer and radio and TV guy or whatever I was going to be, right out of the CIA, I, I covered Occupy Wall Street. And I remember them talking with great affection about a general strike and how they wanted to have a general strike, of course, on, on May Day. And I'll give you some of the history and roots of what this day is all about in a moment, and we'll talk also about how the modern Democrat Party, most notably Elizabeth Warren recently, uses rhetoric that would be uh, quite at home in many of the leftist protests on May 1st that we saw today around the world, but also would have in decades past, including when there was, oh, we're not told much about this anymore, an active communist movement in America, the Communist Party USA, it was a real thing, somehow largely forgotten to historians, except to explain to us all that it wasn't a real thing. McCarthyism, the Red Scare, it was just scare tactics. No, in fact, there was widespread sympathy on the American left, not just for socialism, but for all-out communism. And we're not talking about random Twitter trolls, because, of course, Internet didn't exist at the time, uh, but I'm talking about the leading luminaries of the American left, the Democrat Party, some of the most prominent writers, the most prominent thinkers the Democrat Party were, if not openly favorable towards communism, very much willing to make excuses for it. And you go back to the period of the 30s and 40s, and it was, I should note, the the perceived failure of capitalism uh, coming after the First World War in the 1930s, and the depression that gave so much fuel to that communist fire. So many people believe that a more just society, a more just world would be possible if only they would embrace these Marxist principles. And that then leads me back to today. I'm, I'm heading to the airport, trying to get here in time for the show and, or I'm about to be heading to the airport. I'm told, well, there's going to be a general strike. And I've heard this term before. I'm familiar with it. I said, Oh, general strike, like occupy wall street or like May day or like, what happened after the Haymarket riots, and we'll get into all this later. For those of you who don't know the history, and I, and I wouldn't expect you to because it's never it's never talked about. Never mind being taught, right? You and I both know that much of what you need to learn, you have to teach yourself. 
Um, it, unfortunately, the education uh, that we get these days and, and, and for decades back um, pushes you to be an autodidact, uh, pushes you to teach yourself things. I, people ask me sometimes, when did you read Edmund Burke? When did you read John Stuart Mill? When did, and I was a political science major, and the answer was on my own, in my free time. And if you want to learn the history of labor movements, the real history of them and their affinity in this country for communism and uh, for statism, you have to largely seek it out on your own and read about it. Um, And I would also recommend if you want to know just how deep the betrayal of every ideal and every truth that how deep the betrayal was in Western society by the intellectual class in favor of communism. Go back, if you would, and you can read uh, Robert Conquest with The Great Terror, in which he talks about this. And people challenged him and thought that it was, oh, he must be over, must be overestimating or, or must be exaggerating Stalin's purges and the atrocities committed there. And Uh, New York Times put out an editorial, not by the editorial board, but published an editorial by an op-ed writer that was almost staggering in its uh, tone-deaf nature, at least to me. Uh, Communism once—this was the title of the piece. I saw this. I'm trying to hang out on a beach. Granted, it was a little rainy, but I'm trying to hang out on a beach. And I see on my phone, and a girlfriend keeps saying, put your phone away. Stop doing work. You're always doing work. You're always thinking about this. And she's right. I I mean to not— do that, but I love this job, and I greatly value and, and appreciate, and I'm thankful for the time you give me here in the hut. And I always want to add more. I always want to do more. Every minute that I have with you is precious. So, uh, the New York Times opinion piece was: Communism once gave ordinary Americans a sense of their humanity, which would be news to the hundreds of millions of people behind the Iron Curtain who had their humanity completely denied and destroyed by communism. But this is still a a reasonably prevalent opinion among enlightened, so-called enlightened intellectuals on the left. I mean, of course, they abandon enlightenment thinking and their adherence to communist philosophy. But you got to, you know, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. They get into very easy ends justify the means theorizing in one way or another. So back to general strike. And I know I'm moving around a lot today, and that's just going to be the way it is because I have so much to say to you because we didn't get to hang out on Friday. I'm told there's going to be a general strike. I think to myself, well, what what could this be about and what is it over? And sure enough, it involves um, labor unions, uh, public sector labor unions in Puerto Rico, where I've chosen to go. Uh, and take a a short vacation because I just needed to get away. And Puerto Rico is uh, in the midst of a debt crisis. $70 billion in debt has almost a 50% poverty rate. Unemployment double what it is in the rest of the United States. And this came up in the recent debt negotiations, or the recent budget negotiations. Uh, they the The Puerto Rican government... Got $295 million in Medicaid funding. The Democrats wanted to give it $500 million in Medicaid funding. Uh, but Medicaid in Puerto Rico is close to insolvent. So you have these protests going on. I say, oh, or that are about to happen. I say, well, how bad, how bad can they really be? 
Sure enough, I'm told that one of the plans is to shut down the highway to the airport, which yours truly needs to use to get back here to do the show. So thanks to some local intelligence uh, that I gathered, I got got to the airport in time. And within an hour of my arrival, they had, in fact, shut down with protests, shut down roads to the airport. That was how they were trying to make their point. Now, how harming the Puerto Rican economy even more and angering travelers, especially tourists who are essential to what remains of the Puerto Rican economy, how that would help anyone is well beyond me. But there's also, from talking to people in Puerto Rico, a sense of helplessness and despair about the economy because they've spent too much money. The government has spent too much money. It has spent uh, that island of about 3 million people into a very deep hole. And bankruptcy looms. And with bankruptcy would come even greater pain. It would be even harder for uh, people in Puerto Rico to get money and to have economic growth. And But now they're pushing back on austerity. You see, Puerto Rico is a microcosm for what will eventually happen in the rest of the country. Right now, Puerto Rico is small enough, a small enough population, that the discussion can be about how to avert bankruptcy through restructuring. And, and, and it can probably be made okay, although it's not going to be great. What happens when the U.S. reaches that point? And I know that this is thinking that we're not supposed to spend a lot of time on right now because, you know, you know, on one side, you know, Trump is going to make America great. The other side, you know, Trump is a fascist. And there's not a lot of discussion in the middle. We just had a budget go through Sunday night, a budget that I want to talk to you a whole lot more about. Um, but it doesn't tackle the debt crisis we have at all. You'd think that there is no debt crisis in this country. In fact, the continued spending is accepted by both sides. They, they're, they're fighting over little things, what gets funding and what doesn't. I'll give you the specifics on that. But they are not fighting over the real problem, which is that eventually if you spend too much money in the name of either doing good things or doing things for special interests or entitlement programs, whatever it may be, eventually the music stops. Eventually, you can't just keep things going as they have been. Something that cannot continue will not continue. And while I was down in Puerto Rico, two things came together during my short stay. One is, what is a debt crisis like? It is painful. It is upsetting to people. It hurts people. It shuts down businesses. It means that there is unrest in the streets. It means closed shops. It means people lose their homes. It means people's dreams are shattered. A debt crisis is a deeply destructive and corrosive thing. And unless you have the political will to stop it, in this country, that is where we're heading. And also, why do the public sector unions and the international workers' movements and Marxists of different types and, and proclivities, why do they think that the answer is always just, of course, we'll give the government more control? How is that going to solve anything? Or just continue to pay the public sector unions because, well, we like them. And shutting down with a strike on May Day, International Workers' Day, I had both May Day mayhem going on in Puerto Rico and I'm there and a debt crisis unfolding before my eyes. And I thought I was supposed to be on vacation. At least it was good for us here on The Hut because we can talk about it. I'll be right back. Well, at least we didn't see anything that I'm aware of like what happened on the streets of France today because, you know, if you're going to commemorate a holiday, uh, why not throw Molotov cocktails at police officers 
in the aftermath of a democratic election in France that no, nobody thinks wasn't free and fair. They, these protesters just don't like who came in second place, probably not even going to win. Maybe we'll talk more about the French election a bit later in the show. But Antifa forces, which now includes anti-Marine Le Pen uh, protesters, uh, this is how they express their displeasure. Yeah, they're just throwing flammables, projectiles, incendiaries. Uh, speech doesn't really work out well for them. That's just what you what you hear in the background there. That was a street scene in Paris earlier today. So uh, that's what I suppose you can expect from, from anti-fascist protesters is dressing in all black and throwing bombs at people they don't like after an election that they disapprove of. They have no grasp of, of irony, I suppose. Um, but we didn't have anything like that. We did have, though, and, and I wasn't even looking for this today. I was just coming back into the city and trying to get ready for some rocking out with you in, in the Freedom Hut here. But I walked through a protest in Union Square, bringing me back to my roots in conservative media as a uh, reporter covering Occupy Wall Street. I spent so much time at all the Occupy Wall Street protests. I think I was at almost every major Occupy Wall Street protest that there or, you know, event that there was, including the night that they all got cleared out by the NYPD. That was interesting. Story for another time. Uh, but uh, it was also funny to see some of my old NYPD colleagues on the street. They're like, I was like, hey, what's up, guys? They're like, oh, Buck, what are you doing now? I'm like, ah, oh, you know, media working for this company, the Blaze, covering this thing. They're like, oh, great, good to see you. They're like, stay out of the way. There's going to be some, uh, <laughs> there's going to be some, uh, Pepper spray soon. I'm like, yeah, thanks for the heads up. Okay, so I walked through in uh, Union Square, which has a long history, I should note, here in New York City for being a center of workers' protest movements as well. Um, and this is supposed to also be global, so it, it happens in many cities all across the country. But uh, Washington Square has been the site of some of the biggest uh, pro-communist, pro-socialist gatherings in I'd be willing to say, I think, in the history of this country. So I took some photos of some of these signs. There are no borders. This was just today, May Day, everybody, which just so we're all clear, and if you're wondering about it, uh, May Day as an international distress call is a completely different issue. It derives from the French, venez May Day, which means come help me. So that's, it's uh, May Day, M apostrophe, A-I-D-E-R. That's where May Day comes from. When people yell, May Day, May Day, when they get shot down. It means come help me. It, it has nothing to do with May Day or communism or anything else. It's Vene May Day in the French. Uh, my French is better than my non-existent Spanish, which came up a few times over the last few days. Uh, anyway, the signs I saw were things like, there are no borders in the workers' struggle. Uh, okay, so we got some open borders stuff. Defend Syria against U.S. attack. This is on the streets of New York City, my friends. Defend, defend Assad against U.S. attack? Wow, okay. No ban, no wall, full citizenship rights for all. So, oh, everybody gets to be a citizen now. That's interesting. We also had a guy with a sign, No Korean War, Stop Thad in Korea, the high-altitude uh, defense, missile defense system. And then there were some uh, black bloc individuals there as well with... Oh, all kinds of Marxist, revolutionary, and anarchist literature they're handing out. Some of it I picked up. Uh, let's talk about the socialist, Marxist, communist roots of this day, my friends. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Anarchy's red hand, rioting and bloodshed in the streets of Chicago. Police mowed down with dynamite, strikers killed with volleys from revolvers. Thus the headline on uh, May 6th, 1886 in the New York Times referring to what would later be known as the Haymarket incident or the Haymarket massacre, the Haymarket affair, uh, depending on who's doing the talking and how they want to portray the incident. Um, So Haymarket ties directly to um, May Day. Um, Haymarket is now what socialists and communists uh, have decided to they've picked May 1st as a day that they will commemorate the Haymarket affair, which was not on May 1st, but it was a means of putting greater uh, emotional and psychological importance on this uh, commemoration on on May 1st. Uh, later on, by the way, there would be there would be a movement to call it Americanization Day. Can you think of such a thing now? Oh gosh, the New York Times, the Washington Post would just so upset. Americanization Day. Does that, in, does that include on the undocumented? Are they allowed to be part of Americanization Day? Uh, but that was meant to oppose communism. It was also called Loyalty Day, um, but that did not catch on quite as much. Um, I want to talk to you about Haymarket and May Day and the socialist, communist, anarchist roots of, well, protests that continue to this day. I walked through one myself. I was lucky to avoid Another one on my way to the airport in Puerto Rico, and there are similar protests across the country and around the world, in Germany, in France, in name a major Western industrial country, and you will likely see some version of a May Day workers' protest, right? Workers often being a euphemism for Marxism, socialism, even communism, depending on who specifically we're talking about. So uh, before we can get into why today's May Day, though, I wanted to get back even a little earlier than that. I want to do some history with you. So you can sit back, kick up your feet if you, if you can. Let's, let's roll back to the beginning. The Haymarket Affair, the first May Day and how it was turned into an international socialist holiday of sorts. It all started in Chicago. And Chicago... Well, how did it get started? Back in the 1880s, which is around the time we're going to talk about here with Haymarket and the workers' movement, um, Chicago was booming. Uh, Chicago is actually the uh, version that the French came up with in response to the Miami and Illinois tribes using the word uh, Chicaqua, which means stinky onion, not to be confused with, as Alice Cooper tells us, Milwaukee, which means the good land. But Chicago, or Stinky Onion, uh, was a reference to the plants that were common along the river, now the Chicago River. So, in a sense, Chicago was named for, or is named, the Stinky Onion Town. Take that, Windy City. What's up? From the New York guy. Uh, But they also, of course, called it the Windy City later on because of the, once it became this thriving, massive, incredibly booming metropolis uh, in record speed. Uh, It was called the Windy City in reference to the city's boasting lobbyists and politicians 
And it was called that, of course, in the New York press. So a little New York before New York and New Jersey were locked in a in a uh, in a fraternal and endless feud. The New York press liked to take some pot shots at Chicago. Um, Chicago came up out of nothing, as I told you. There were some small settlements. There was uh, Fort Dearborn uh, that the Brits destroyed in the area in the War of 1812. It wasn't really till the 1830s that you get the Illinois legislature setting up a town that in 1833 only had a few hundred residents. It's now America's third largest city. But, of course, as you know, in real estate, only three things matter. Location, location, location. And Chicago happens to be on a great piece of land. It had uh, lake traffic, especially because of the opening of a canal in 1848. It allowed Great Lakes traffic to connect to the Mississippi River. The Gulf of Mexico, Chicago, sits at the nexus of all of that. By the 1860s, it was about 100,000-plus, and at the end of the 1880s, Chicago is at a million. That's a 10x increase in 30 years. Think about that. And this is in the 19th century. So it was booming. Now, why am I telling you about all—oh, before I get into why I'm telling you, a few more interesting things about Chicago, because I like history. There was a big fire in 1871. It burned from Sunday of that week until Tuesday. Tremendous consequences for the city. It's largely, of course, wooden. Changes the nature even to this day of how cities have to tend for the, uh, tend to themselves and uh, secure themselves against fire because it used to be the case that it, the fire department was dealing with wooden houses burning down all the time. Now most new structures, of course, are not wood. Very few structures in, in cities these days that go up are, uh, are wood or have much wood in them at all. But a quarter of all dwellings in 1871 in Chicago and most of its business districts burned down. So thousands of people were left homeless. And... There was a, an ability to set up uh, some city planning as a result of this, uh, unintentional urban planning as a result of the devastation of this massive fire. But then there was a big boom in construction, a, an enormous surge in commercial activity and industry in Chicago. Uh, and the railroads came along, too. Chicago became a hub, in the, a, a major hub in the railroad network. So you've got canals, rivers, railroads all come together in Chicago and... This is where it turns into, well, why do, why do we care? I mean, other than getting to make an Alice Cooper reference and tell you that Chicago means stinky onion, which is kind of fun. Why am I telling you all this? Well, these, uh, all of these commercial interests literally intersecting with the various means of transportation in Chicago in the 19th century, this incredible boom in the size and importance of, of Chicago uh, led to a, a, a similar... Uh, boom in the workforce. And factories had enormous numbers of new workers, many of them new immigrants coming in uh, to deal with all of the employment needs as a result of this industrialization and commercialization of Chicago circa 1870 into the 1880s. And you had 80,000 employees in Chicago in uh, 1880. Uh, which then skyrockets to 210,000 employees in 1890. So this becomes the, a center of the urban labor movement. Um, and then you have, and by the way, if those of you wondering, it's like, oh, wait, the labor movement, interesting, 19th century also. We look at Karl, where did Karl Marx live? When did he die? Karl Marx dies towards the end of the 19th century. Some of those ideas about workers of the world unite and a dictatorship of the proletariat and class struggle and... I wish I could do a whole, maybe we'll do a whole hour on what, why Marx matters to us today. It certainly matters to the Democrats. 
certainly matters to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And quite honestly, it matters to the entire Democratic Party. And here's the dirty other little secret. Some Republicans kind of like some of that redistributive socialist-esque stuff, too. I'm just saying. But back to Haymarket, the workers' movement, and industrialization. Okay, so you've got, um, at, a, at an average, 60 hours a week, six days a week, that was what workers were in for. And there was, a, of course, a very real conflict between capitalists and labor here. There were firings and walkouts. There was blacklisting. There was strike breaking. And the newspapers played a, a fiery role in all of this, many of them taking the side, believe it or not, at the time of the capitalists. Today, the major newspapers are all owned by capitalists, but take the perspective of, oh, we're all about the people and the workers. Yeah, right. New York Times, all about the workers, as long as the workers don't, you know, hang out at their country clubs and take up their tables at, uh, at Sunday brunch. Um, but I digress. Uh, you even had some radical, and this is where, of course, Marxism and, and some of those ideas comes uh, into play. You had some radical German labor movement and workers' movement ideas that were literally imported from Germany into the United States. You had a German-language newspaper, uh, Arbeiter Zeitung, that was uh, radical and leftist and promoting ideas um, of, well, what we would consider today incitement, uh, some pretty nasty stuff. Um, and we saw the results of this. Now we think of the primary ideological threat to the United States comes from radical Islam, I think. I mean, I shouldn't say we, because, of course, there are a lot of Americans who are like, radical Islam's not even a threat. But uh, we understand it's the, pri- it's the primary ideological opposition on a global scale uh, from a security perspective, from an economic perspective, it's still redistribution and it's still Marxism and socialism just dressed up in different terms, if not outright Marxism. That may be a bit extreme, but Marxist principles through a progressive tax code and redistribution of wealth in a massive and enlarged state. Sounds like the Democratic Party right now, right? But you go back and not all that much has really changed in the thinking. They just changed the terms. In fact, when you read former communists, they would refer to themselves they would refer to themselves as progressives in this country, in America. And that was totally normal. They're like, well, yeah, socialist communists, we're all progressives. Now, of course, progressive has become a term that liberals use because liberal became somewhat tainted for one reason or another in the 90s and into the early 2000s. And so they switched to progressive. Um, and I prefer that because they're anti-liberal, but Now I'm going off on yet another tangent. Primary ideological enemy in the United States around the time of the workers' movement here um, was, uh, that we're talking about here, was was, uh, anarchism. And that was a catch-all term that often included what would be more accurately ideologically described as Marxism, communism, socialism, some some version of uh, all of those. In fact, in 1901, many of you, I'm sure, are thinking, wait a second, oh yeah, that's right, there was the assassination of William McKinley, President of the United States, by Leon Chalgosh, anarchist, you'll see. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt said after the assassination in a special message that, quote, when compared with the suppression of anarchy, every every, uh, question sinks into insignificance. The anarchist is the enemy of humanity, the enemy of all mankind, and is a deeper degree of criminality than any other. 
No immigrant is allowed to come to our shores if he is an anarchist. And no paper published here or abroad should be permitted in circulation in this country if it propagates anarchist opinions. That's from the White House, 1908. Oh, an ideological test for immigrants? Buck, I thought that's not allowed. I thought that's Islamophobia. Oh, no. In fact, anarchists and communists were, were explicitly barred from uh, citizenship, barred from admission into this country if it could be proven they were part of either organization or shared either ideology. Anarchists uh, in 1910, well, they were referred to as anarchists, although oftentimes socialists, labor radicals, that was all blended in together. There was a Los Angeles Times bombing, killed 21 newspaper employees. In 1920, there was a huge bomb at Wall Street here in New York City. Uh, Right around noon on September 16th, 1920, horse-drawn carriage pulls up with 500 pounds of dynamite and cast iron weights to act as shrapnel. You had anarchists plant an enormous IED, although they wouldn't have called it that at the time. But that's what it was. Uh, Right on Wall Street, when Wall Street was the financial heart of New York and of the country. Now Wall Street, the actual street, is really a tourist attraction largely, and the big banks are all over the city and all over the world. But there were 30 people killed in that blast. Another eight died of later wounds, 143 injured. New York Stock Exchange was was barely damaged at all. And it was carried out by a faction of Italian anarchists. And they were all about labor struggles, and they were all about anti-capitalist agitation. These were primary ideological enemies against this country, all, all about workers of the world uniting. All, a lot of the rhetoric that you'll hear today at these mainstream protests was echoed by these, or is an echo of, these anarchist and socialist groups that this country was explicitly opposed to, wanted to keep out, understood that ideologies could threaten societies. In fact, ideologies could undermine entire civilizations, including our own. And that Marxism was therefore an existential threat and also its anarchist cousins. Um, I have to get to Haymarket and May Day, and I'm having too much fun talking about all this stuff, so I'm going a little longer than I intended to. But you know what? Let's talk Haymarket. Should we get up to speed on that? And then we'll talk budget and climate change march and other fun things. I have so much show, my friends, and not even nearly enough time. 844-900-2825. You'd like to call in? Want to add in some thoughts on any of this? Just pose a question or say hi Glad I made it back through the protests in Puerto Rico. Great to hear from you all. I will be right back. So 1880s, Chicago is the heart of the labor movement and what happens on uh, on May 4th. Uh, what happens on May 4th, 1886 at Haymarket Square in Chicago um, is, well, what the... Anarchists and communists and socialists decide will forever after be commemorated on May 1st as May Day and International Workers' Day, the Haymarket Affair. So you've got a bunch of labor movements decide that May Day, May 1st, which was also, by the way, a completely separate festival about springtime and celebrated in many countries, and it's classic practice. Whenever you want to start a holiday, pick somebody else's holiday and put yours on top of that. That's all. Uh, discuss, you could you can look at different cultures, religions, any number of things. Lots of lots of piggybacking on holidays that happens. Um, but e- e- they decided that in 1884 there would be uh, a general strike, like what happened today in Puerto Rico. And I was trying to leave Puerto Rico, 
I don't know how much it, uh, how much of it actually came together, other than they did block the airport road. Fortunately, it had already gotten through. Um, but there were some striking workers in Chicago in 1884 that gathered near the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company plant, uh, where there had been a face-off between strike breakers and uh, and um, uh, strikers, <laughs> strike breakers and strikers, for months. And hundreds of police had been brought in to protect the strike breakers. But there was a confrontation, a fight broke out, and police opened fire, killing two. No surprise, anarchists seized this moment and movement, a uh, moment rather, and made their move. They printed flyers, they called for a rally, and of course demanded, yes, you know it, justice. Justice. In fact, Spies, remember when I told you about that newspaper in Chicago? The, uh, what was it, the uh, Arbeiter... Arbeiter Zeitung, Workers' Daily, in German, auf Deutschland. Uh, they, or Spies, Albert Spies, wrote in the Arbeiter, quote, blood has flowed, it had to be, and it was. Not in vain has order drilled and trained its bloodhounds. It was not for fun that the militia was practiced in street fighting. The robbers, who know best of all what wretches they are, who pile up their money through the misery of the masses— and who make us trade of the slow murder of the families of working men are the last ones to stop short at the direct shooting down of working men. So, and he goes on at some length. A group then gathered after this was printed. A couple of thousand, maybe. They gave some speeches, but the police came in at the end, around 10.30 at night. They told everybody to disperse, and a bomb was thrown into the path of the approaching police officers. So... Uh, some call it the Haymarket Riot, other call, others call it the Haymarket Massacre. And the casualties uh, against police are something that, of course, the radicals had no problem with at all. You had eight anarchists convicted of the conspiracy. Seven were sentenced to death. One got 15 years. And nobody really knows to this day who threw the bomb. It was a dynamite bomb. Um, and... There are all kinds of conspiracies about this as well. But it was to commemorate that day that May Day became central to the international workers' movement. So the origins of today, all these protests that you see across the country and around the world, go back to, well, a strike and a terrorist attack from leftist radicals on police Keep that in mind the next time somebody walks around and says, it's just all about, like, an eight-hour workday, man. No, it's really not just that. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. It's going to be a significant increase in military spending. Our armed forces have been hollowed out in recent years by, by budget cuts, $21 billion in defense spending in this bill. Uh, there's also a, a down payment on border security. I'm also pleased to see, as the president was insistent on, uh, that we're providing support for health benefits for coal miners. And right here in the District of Columbia, we're continuing an educational choice program for disadvantaged children mm-hmm. that began back in the days that I was in the Congress. So uh, this is a budget deal that's a bipartisan win for the American people. A bipartisan win for the American people, the vice president says. This in reference to 
the late Sunday night deal that came together to prevent a government shutdown. I I said to you, as soon as this came up, as, as soon as it was an issue in news cycle, I said, Shutdown's not going to happen, and in fact, the government's going to be more or less funded exactly as it had been planned to be funded under Obama's time in office. I know, I know, it's somewhat uh, irritating to hear it put in those terms, but that is the truth. That's what happened here. The shutdown didn't happen. That's no surprise. The government will be funded as planned. That's no surprise. I told you as much here on the show, and I don't believe any of you. Even contested that uh, afterwards via email or Facebook or anything else. By the way, if you ever contest or have any thoughts about anything I say, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You know, go for it. Love to hear from you. So, uh, as to what all this means now, you got the vice president saying it's great. I don't know how you can make that case. Now, at some point, not Hillary is not enough. And, and we're not there yet. I understand that. But the at least Trump's not Hillary uh, line of thinking, which I still we're only 100 days plus in. It's very it is very early, but very early is going to turn into a midterm fight before we know it. They really only have one more shot at this budget thing before everything will then turn into, well, we got to do whatever we have to do in the midterm elections. So if we have to make some deals or we got to protect this guy or that gal's seat here or there, that's what we'll do. That's how you get the business as usual stuff. All of a sudden, all the principles go out the window. Nobody wants to hear about how uh, we are. We're 20 trillion going on 25, going on 30, going on who knows how many trillions in debt because it's all about the short term uh, political game. But in the meantime, we start to see that not Hillary is not going to be enough forever. And I don't think the administration believes it will be enough. They know they've got to get some things done. There are some major agenda items that Donald Trump promised action on and the Republicans in Congress, many of whom were elected, at least in part, if not largely, by riding on the coattails of Trumpism, especially when it looked like that was the way to go. You all of a sudden, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, I think maybe a, we need a non a non traditional politician. Okay, once he had won the primary, then you had a lot of a lot of Republicans were like, yeah, I like that. That bandwagon looks looks nice. So, um, at some point though, if Trump gives us, let's say, down the line, and we're not there, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just want to give us some rough boundaries and outlines for this discussion so that we don't just con because otherwise you can just fall into I'm just so grateful every day that Trump is not uh Hillary or that that Hillary didn't get elected that doesn't matter what Trump does so that, that that's a pretty low bar we're not there right we understand that that's not going to be enough especially it won't be enough at all if Trump after one term gives us say Elizabeth Warren and a strong Bernie Sanders-esque political wind at her back to do even more damaging progressive uh, policies than Hillary would have gone for. Hillary was is corrupt and venal and uh, and distasteful in so many ways, and and a a true uh, statist, but not I think because of her cronyist connections and her desire to be. Uh, 
well thought of in the corridors of of Nantucket and Northwest D.C., Hillary's not a radical. Is Elizabeth Warren willing to go along with being a radical if she thinks it serves her ends? I believe the answer to that is probably yes. Uh, She certainly uses rhetoric that would be comfortable, oh, I don't know, even at a at a rally of workers in Chicago in the 1880s, including workers who were openly declaring themselves to be either anarchists or communists and thought that the government was a system of oppression and its capitalist overlords needed to be dealt with, including in some very unsavory ways. So, um, the deal. Here's what the deal gives us. The deal that I just played you. you the vice president, Mike Pence, whom seems like a just a very... Uh, solid and and decent guy all around but that doesn't mean he's right all the time and it doesn't mean that he's not going to sometimes tell us that what the trump administration's doing is better than it really is which i think may in fact be the case here my friends i i hate to hate to be the one to rain on the parade especially when rain for three days kind of made my vacation less fun than it was supposed to be um I also love, by the way, whenever you go on vacation, it's not supposed to rain, and it does. Or rather, you're, it's a good time of year to visit, and you get completely rained out. And everyone likes to tell you, like, well, it never rains like this. Well, actually, actually, guy, actually, it does, as we can see uh, from the raining cats and dogs situation going on here. By the way, there's not really a lot of agreement on the raining cats and dogs derivation, where that phrase comes from. I've read all these different versions. And with the internet, you have to be so careful because just like the fake quotes are everywhere. And look, everyone who does their own research at some point gets jammed up with a fake quote on the internet because otherwise, what, are you going to buy a hard copy of every book? If you, I mean, I got a lot of book hard, hard copies of books that I really like, but I mean, I live in New York City, limited apartment space here, very limited. Uh, so you go and you find something on Google Books or whatever. You're like, well, there it is. Well, maybe not. But I but I digress. But yeah, the derivation of words is another one where you'll hear all these different versions of where, or derivation of phrases, where it comes from. Uh, etymology, all this. It's very uh, tricky subject sometimes. But raining cats and dogs supposedly comes from, I believe, Victorian England when the thatched roofs of houses in crowded uh, slums of London as well as other cities, uh, when there was rain, because the do- dogs and cats could get up onto the roof and walk around because they were so close together. When it would rain, sometimes they would fall down because the thatch roof would get wet. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. I just know that's the description of it that I've heard, raining cats and dogs. Other people just told me because, you know, dogs and cats are big and w- have weight, and therefore they're like big raindrops. Anyway, I don't know. Point being, um, that's what people tell you on your vacation, and that's never really all that helpful. Um, but back to the budget deal. Uh, we were we were at this point, I think, resigned to the fact the government was going to be funded as planned. But here's what wasn't in there. Uh, there was no funding for the wall. Uh, there was funding for Planned Parenthood. There's slightly more border funds. There's more detention beds in this budget. And there's $12.5 billion uh, in additional funds for the military, I think specifically uh, to fight the Islamic State. It might get even larger. The price tag might get even larger than that. As I mentioned before, uh, Puerto Rico got $295 million of Medicaid funding. But what exactly is this to tell us about the Republicans' willingness to fight hard fights on issues that really matter? Democrats get the budget they want here. 
In fact, I don't have to be the one who tells you that. You can hear it from you-know-who. They ought to back off repealing Obamacare. We've said over and over again, if he backs off repeal, we'll sit down and work with him to improve Obamacare. He is not governing from the middle. He's governing from the hard right. That's why his regime has, has had hardly any major successes, with the exception of Gorsuch. If he changes, we could work together. Okay, but he can't just dictate what he wants, not talk to us and say you must support it. So that's on Obamacare specifically. I, I meant to pull a different clip on the budget, but that's on me. The point being that Chuck Schumer's out there, and he's standing very tall on this. He's saying, look, you know, we're, we're getting what we want here. And with Obamacare, he better back off, too. I mean, Chuck Schumer sounds like he's the majority leader, but he's not. Are, are we On Obamacare, on the budget, you name it. He is getting what he wants on these uh, various issues as a Democrat. And it forces us all to deal with the question. Let's let's be real about this. What did what did the Democrats not get in this budget that they really want? If the uh, the situation is going to be that the Democrats can always hold the Republican agenda hostage because they can force a government shutdown that the Republicans will inherently be blamed for. Well, then we're at quite a disadvantage, aren't we? How can any important agenda items get through? Uh, they say 160 poison pills Republicans tried to get through were rejected. Oh? Uh, what were those like? I would be curious to see why it is that the GOP, with 238 members, well, they, they need 218 to get something through unless there's going to be a filibuster fight. How many more seats do the Republicans have to have before they can get it done? I think that's a fair question to ask. Uh, what's the what's the point of being in the majority if Democrats can be in the minority and they can kind of give us this ultimatum all the time and win and get the budget that they want? Now, we we are being told right now that Obamacare repeal is there, there are votes for it and that may happen. We're, we're being told right now that Health care is going through, that there are good things coming for Republicans, that people say, look at the Gorsuch nomination. I I agree. I get that. Although the real test comes with the next opening. Okay, The real test comes not with the Scalia seat, which it's very nice that it was a Republican and not a Democrat. Otherwise, Hillary would have given us, uh, you know, a, a judge in the of the mentality of Ginsburg or Sotomayor, one of uh, one of the leftists on the court. But the next seat will be the one that I think really shows us what we're dealing with in this administration. But they funded Planned Parenthood. They didn't fund a wall. They didn't do things that they said they were going to do. Republicans and the White House and and President Trump's administration. Uh, I, I need to understand why that can be viewed as, well, Pence saying we couldn't be more pleased about a budget deal. Now, I know that's a figure of speech. But I think it's quite obvious that he could be a lot more pleased. Or it, it should be quite obvious that he could be a lot more pleased with the budget than what they got, than what they have. Uh, why is it? Why is it that we are to accept this state of affairs? Uh, Democrats, when they had that surge um, uh, back when Obama won in 2008... They were going for major agenda items. They got through Obamacare. 
Republicans may still get this done, but I do think that it is incumbent on all of us to be honest about the shortcomings that we've seen so far with some of these policy uh, policy items. I mean, they can talk about how we've got more money at the border or, you know, we've got you know, 12 billion more for the military. I mean, this is not this is not moving heaven and earth, my friends. This is all pretty minor around the edges stuff. It gives people something to say when they're talking about what they negotiated over, what they got on one side or the other, but it doesn't change anything. It doesn't fundamentally shift anything meaningful. And I need to ask this question. Why are we to believe that now that the government is funded until September, uh, when this comes up again, and this is what they're telling us, there will be much greater willingness to fight these battles. But they're going to have the same number of Republicans in the House. They're going to have the same number of Republican senators, the same president. What changes? What's the difference? They're going to prepare the groundwork for this political fight over the summer? They're, they're going to do this, what, at, at town halls in August? Uh, that, that's the big answer? It's going to be, the, it's going to be a, a replay. It's going to be deja vu, my friends. They're going to tell us that the Republicans are forcing a shutdown of the government. That would be so terrible. Republicans don't want to get blamed. Oh, the midterms are looming. So when does the big stand happen? When does the Republican majority charge the Hill and take the consequences and go for it? I'm not saying they won't. I just want to know when and how that will how that will be a different set of circumstances leading up to it than what we have right now. Because, like I said, not Hillary is fine and good and it is a legitimate line of thinking. And I I myself subscribe to it. But not Hillary is not enough forever, because if not Hillary leads to Elizabeth Warren and a and a Democrat majority in the House and the Senate or even just it's a Democrat in the White House in the mold of a. Sanders or Warren, we have big problems. And everything that we were worried about with Hillary just got delayed a few years, really. So I need to see action. And I want to know when it'll happen. I want to know what you think about this budget deal. Good enough? Business as usual? What do you think? All right, team, these lines are lit up in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for uh, doing that for me. I appreciate it. Love to hear from all of you. Team Buck represent. Dan in North Carolina on WPTI. Good to have you, sir. Hey, how are you this evening? Good, sir. Thank you for calling in. Super. I just want to point out something, and it's something I've been saying for a year. It It's hard to remember you came to drain the swamp when you're up to your ass in alligators. And Donald Trump has got a tough, tough job ahead of him, but I will tell you this last week, this this budget totally disappointed me, and I'm I'm really worried about uh, where we're going with him at this point, and I, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, but he, he took on a big job, that I do realize. And I, I, I agree with all of those sentiments, um, and I, the, the colorful alligator analogy uh, was interesting. Um, but uh, I, I would say that it should give you some comfort, Dan, for whatever it's worth, that you know you're sticking to your judgment and your principles on this, and not allowing just sheer partisanship and political tribalism to dictate you know your thoughts on that. I, I worry about some of my friends who are great conservatives who just think everything Trump does is awesome. That's not possible. Everything anybody does is not going to be awesome. 
So I get very <laughs> suspicious and a little annoyed, quite honestly, with some folks who have, I believe, a duty to inform their fellow Americans, particularly their fellow conservatives who listen to them of what's really going on and to be honest about it, because it's easy to just say, well, the media is terrible and like they all want to destroy Trump. And so everything Trump does is awesome because of that. And, I mean, sometimes that's fair, but sometimes that's a, sometimes that's cheap. That's too easy. They've never been in a firefight because if you've never been in a firefight, you're really so that's all I can say. And I I'm behind Trump 100%. I'll never give up on him. I'm just disappointed in the last week. That's all I can say. I hear you, my man. Thank you very much for calling in. I, I appreciate it. Shields high. Um, let's take uh, Trump. I'm, I'm sorry, Trump. Oh, gosh. Let's take Donald Trump. He called in. He loves the show so much. Uh, I was I was going to launch into a terrible Trump impersonation, but that would be bad for everybody. Tom in Ohio, not Donald Trump, but still awesome on WWVA. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, I'm very honored to uh, be called Trump. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, as far as the uh, budget is concerned, uh, Buck, two things. Number one, as far as uh, shutting it down. That should be part of the budget decision, if you think about it, because every time there's an inch of snow in Washington, D.C., what do they do? They stay home and they say non-essential, all non-essential people stay home. I think we ought to start looking at what is essential, and not only in Washington, D.C., but in the rest of the country. I mean, we, you know, what are we paying for that we don't really need? And with a $20 trillion national debt, I think that should be considered as impairing away at the budget. Then, now, the second point is this idea of the wall. The wall is necessary not only from the standpoint of uh, drugs and uh, fire, fire, drugs coming here, firearms going to uh, Mexico, and the sex uh, uh, slave trade and terrorism, and the illegal still coming up, but the whole idea of a cultural shift. Now, you don't have to take a look at what's happening in Europe and happening in the Middle East and, and realize that we're already bilingual. We're already uh, very quickly becoming trilingual and quadrilingual in many instances. I mean, I get a uh, uh, thing from my phone company, AT&T, saying that they speak to 10 different languages and eight different, 10 different numbers that they had for anybody that wants to you know, use them. My uh, Medicare uh, drug uh, 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 part of it. We've got 10 seconds, Tom. <laughs> 65 different languages, we, we are setting ourselves up for the same type of turmoil that there is in the Middle East and is in uh, Europe. And, and I really All don't right, Tom, thank you for calling. I'm sorry we're at time. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. I see a lot of lines lit up. I appreciate that, team. So please, if you can be patient, we'll get to your calls as soon as we can. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825. But first, I want to introduce you to a a new guest in the Freedom Hut. Our uh, latest here is Hans Feeney. He is a senior contributor to The Federalist. He is a Lutheran pastor and the creator of Lutheran satire. Hans, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so I know you, you write some very interesting stuff for the Federalist, including a piece a while back, why why men and women can never be just friends, which I'm sure got you a lot of very interesting emails uh, and, and commentary online. But first, yeah. But first, talk to me a bit about um, how you you are concerned about the the state of outrage in this country. Yeah, well, that the response to my article really kind of uh, hit home, I think, on that point, and I think. Uh, 
social media is, is in many ways, it's great and fantastic. It's like the rest of the Internet. It, in some ways, it's the greatest thing ever invented, and in other ways, it's the, the exact opposite of that. And I think social media shows this quite a bit, uh, especially for whatever reason Twitter is this way, in that um, it, it kind of functions as uh, it's sort of, there's a decent amount of evidence that I've seen just from stuff I've looked at that um, that uh, that anger is uh, somewhat of a can become somewhat of a drug for people that people actually are tr- uh, in, that when people lash out in anger towards people when they're cruel and nasty and just sort of throwing uh, harsh words at people that this is actually releasing uh, endorphins in their brain, so they're actually trying to essentially get high off. The, of the research from bullying says exactly that. I've read that. I've read that uh, uh, social science research, and it says that bullying. While we think of oh, bullies are just acting out because they're insecure, bullying actually makes people feel good. Right. Yeah. And and so I think it's that that same kind of process. That's basically just what it is that drugs do, and it's uh, you know kind of the same thing that's at play in, uh, in in the problem of pornography addiction and things of that nature. And I think the way that t- that a website, for example, like Twitter, often functions is Twitter is sort of like your 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 pusher, your drug dealer, where you wake up every morning and your brain goes, "I want that hit of of lashing out in anger towards someone," and so you log on to Twitter, and Twitter goes, "Well, here you go. Here's the thing that you want to be mad at. Here's the person that you're mad at today." And um, that's certainly a problem in and of itself. But I think a lot of what's happening is that that impulse is actually making people stupider uh, because what happens is um, that when you want to be angry uh, you can't you don't you generally don't read things with a you don't give things a fair reading so if if it's a controversial issue and you want to be mad at the person uh, who's caught up in the news or whatever it is you don't really want to give them the benefit of the doubt because giving them the benefit of the doubt uh, stops you from being able to be as angry or if you're mad at a certain argument uh, certain political or religious or whatever it is argument uh, that you don't want to actually give it a fair reading, and you don't want to legitimately understand where people are coming from, and you don't want to have a really a kind of a balanced take on the issue, because the more that you do that, the less you're going to be able to extract you know the, that kind of sweet uh, anger from uh, from whatever the issue is. And I noticed this a bit. Uh, and, the, and a lot of the really hostile response I got to my article, you know, probably kind of mainly in the sense that um, what I basically I got a lot of response basically. Well, you got well, you got to tell people what the article said, and then you can tell oh, us about sure. the hostile response. Just yeah, give us give right. us the uh, the precive the, the the twenty or thirty second version. Sure. So the gist of my article on friendship was that by and large, by virtue of the fact that God has created men and women differently to carry out different functions, that men and women tend to offer different forms of companionship. And my point was is that the things that make women really good companions also, for men, make them very good spouses. Uh, and so the point is is that, is that if a guy is all of a sudden spending time, if, if a guy normally spends time with people who share his interests and like doing the same things that he does and like socializing the way that he does, if he's all of a sudden spending his time with a woman who doesn't share those interests and doesn't necessarily socialize that way, it's because he doesn't actually want to be friends with her. He actually wants to date her. And oftentimes guys in that pursuit get sort of caught up in this friend zone where the girl just wants to be friends and they think they, if they just kind of pay their dues in, in the friend zone, they can eventually sort of leap over into relationship land. So that was kind of the, the gist of the argument. And what, what was just very kind of odd to me about the response was I got a lot of people saying, oh, I just think it's so terrible that, uh, that you can only view women as sex objects. 
And uh, the interesting thing to me was I, in the article, I talk very little. Uh, I say virtually nothing about sex. And I talked about marriage, and I talked about how it is that, that these are the, you know, the kinds of things that make women good companions, as I said, make men want to marry women. And to me, that it, there, it seems like there's a very clear distinction between a man pursuing marriage and a man pursuing a sexual conquest. You know, there's a clear difference between a man seeking to honor a woman through marriage and a man seeking to just use a woman physically. And it was amazing to me that people weren't picking up on that distinction, and I figured it was either, one, they just simply didn't read the article, uh, you know, and they just saw people that they follow yelling about it, so they did, did likewise without actually reading it, which is you know, probably a good, uh, a, pro there's probably a good chance that that was what was going on, or they just simply refused to draw a distinction between, you know, between pursuing marriage and pursuing sex, because by not drawing that distinction, they could justify just getting mad about it. And people just like to get mad <laughs> on social media in particular. People enjoy saying nasty, mean stuff. I would have to say my experience with that is it must be true because, look, I, I've been working in media now for, for six years, and I regularly get messages from listeners, uh, readers, people who see me on TV, and I can just tell, especially when it's on Facebook, because then you, you might get it. Some people will do it from their account. It's clearly them. And, you know, it's like this is not somebody who would ever say this probably to any human being in real life. Definitely uh, not to me in real life. But it feels good on social media for some reason. People act like maniacs on social media. Yeah. And I think this is a way in which I, I would say that social media is just not natural. Uh, in the sense that, kind of in the same way I, I talked a little bit before about, I mentioned before about, you know, kind of the problem of, of pornography addiction and things of that nature, that men just were not designed to be able to look at naked women 24 hours a day. So it's, you know, it, it, it's reforming the way that their brains think when they start doing that. And in the same way, uh, there's just kind of a natural understanding of how human nature works and, and how human relations work which is that if you say something really awful to a human being in front of them, you're likely going to get socked in the mouth. And, there's, and to a certain extent, I'm not an advocate of violence, but to a certain extent that is good in the sense that it teaches people boundaries and it teaches people limits and it teaches people to kind of guard themselves in and to learn, oh, that's not a thing that you should say to someone. Uh, you know, that's a human being and you should treat them with respect. Uh, and in the same way, also, just even apart from violence, that, you know, we've probably all had that thing in life where you say something nasty to a person when they're right in front of you, and then you see that kind of hurt reaction in their face, you know, and your gut just goes, oh, that was not, I don't like making people feel that way. I shouldn't do that again. And the Internet just completely takes all that away. So you can say whatever you want to someone without any kind of, you know, physical ramifications, without without any kind of... Um, sort of, you know, fist in the mouth, putting in your place, showing you you don't talk that way. And it also doesn't let you see, it doesn't, doesn't give you that experience of, of, of watching someone respond in hurt and you kind of developing empathy and going, oh, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that again. And I, I think that's a bad thing for people to kind of be able to indulge in that type of behavior without, and separate themselves from any of the kind of natural consequences from it. Hans Feeney is a senior contributor to The Federalist. You can read his work on thefederalist.com. He's also a Lutheran pastor. And where can they find your series of comical videos intended to teach the Lutheran face, like 95 Theses rap or something? What kind of stuff are we talking about here? 
That, that one's not mine. Yeah, that's a great one uh, for those who have seen it. But that one's not. Is that mine. actually a uh, thing? I just made that up on the spot. That's a thing. No, no, there, yeah, there, there's a, there's a pretty cool rap about the ninety five thesis. Someone else put out a few years ago. So <laughs> okay, uh, but uh, you can find it at lutheransatire.org, or if you just go on YouTube and check out uh, Luther and just type in Lutheran satire, or you'll find it there. Hans, thank you so much for coming by the hut. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break. I appreciate uh, the holding. Uh, for those of you who have called in, we'll get to you. And anyone who wants to call in can also give us a ring, 844-900-2825. Uh, we also want to talk climate change, third hour, so much more coming up. Stay right with me. I'll be back. Jesse in Mississippi on WJDX. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. What's happening, Buck? How much? Look, man, first, before before I get on my rant about this budget, I just want to say I appreciate you being on the radio. I'm stuck in a track hole all day long, and you listen to Beck in the morning, and that guy just just about rather listen to rap music than listen to Beck. Then you got Limbaugh, and Limbaugh's good, but he gets a little off the chain sometimes. And then you got Hannity, who's basically in love with himself. And then when I need common sense, you come on. And I actually wind up working late just so I can hear your show. Well, I very so, much appreciate thanks. the compliment, sir. Well, thanks for being out there and putting common sense to an insane world. Thank you, sir. Uh, Buck, I, I, I'm livid over this whole damn budget deal. I, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I want to know, I mean, you're up there. You're, you've been around D.C. How do these people get elected after continuously telling us lies about what they're going to do the minute we elect them, and then get in there and just have total brain meltdown. They they forget everything they said they were going to do. Well, I just understand. as they're, they're they're good at telling us lies about what they're going to do, unfortunately, Jesse, they're also good about telling us lies about why they haven't done what they promised to do. <laughs> so that's well, it comes with the skill set, if you know what I mean. I've been hearing this defund Planned Parenthood now for years. You know, and I'm a Trump supporter. Don't get me wrong. Me too. Voted for him, said I would be for and did on the day. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, but I know Trump can only do what they let him do. I mean, they've kind of got him by the shorties. So he has to sing their song some. But this Planned Parenthood deal, this was a setup from the word go. I believe in my heart. The Dems are holding his feet to the fire just so that when they get to 18, they can say, but see, the Republicans went with Planned Parenthood. Uh, they even realize that we're right. Yeah, and, why why not? You know, J- Jesse, could on Planned Parenthood, isn't it fair to say that if the Republicans had given Democrats everything they gave them minus Planned Parenthood and then Democrats pushed a shutdown on that issue, at a minimum, would have exposed how dedicated to public funding for abortions the Democratic Party is, which is it, it is a central platform. I mean, it, it is a central tenet of the Democrat Party oh, right now. And and I mean, and, absolutely. No, and how are we supposed to say that Republicans who know what's going on know that taxpayer dollars are being used by these abortion mills across the country? They won't go to the mat on this. What will this is what I ask my friends out there listening right now who are telling me, Buck, and I'm already getting some of the heat. I can see it on on social media and stuff. And Jesse Shields, hi, thank you for calling in. Uh, but you know, when, when will they go to the mat? I know, I know, it's 4D chess, and I'm not the president, and Trump is is a miracle worker, and he beat Hillary, and, and I get, I get all of that. But when do they decide that instead of maneuvering around the enemy's 
fortifications, they will charge, so to speak. Well, when does that happen? You know, eventually, if you just keep maneuvering, you're not even in the battle anymore. Or you've conceded. You might as well be defeated. You've left. So I, I'm not, we're not there yet. I know that's too far, but this is not this is not impressive. Buck is not impressed. Might be one way of, of putting this. Uh, but thank you for the call from Mississippi, Jesse. Uh, Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. Hello, sir. Richard, hey, we got you, buddy. What's up? Uh oh, I think Richard. I think Richard went to uh, get a you know a nightcap or something. He's he's gone. Uh, Spencer in Ohio, WHLO. What's up, sir? Yes, our government has let us down since 1947. We had a chance to outlaw the Communist Party, and Ronald Reagan said no. Uh, but Eisenhower signed an act to outlaw the Communist Party on August the 24th, 1954. Uh, so therefore, I'm calling upon our president to pass the Munt-Nixon bill now, to outlaw the Communist Party, if we had done so back in 1947, uh, we would not have had a communist in the White House as we have over the last eight years. Well, we're, we're, we're I, not in the we're not in the business of, of outlawing political parties. People can believe whatever politics they want to believe in this country as long as they don't foment the uh, insurrection uh, and overthrow of the United States government. Spencer, uh, we can we can hey. dispense we can dispense uh, we can dispense. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we. Thank you. Uh, the, the American Communist Party still exists. It is very small. The bigger problem, uh, for, and well, well, by the way, I don't even need to explain this to all of you. Outlawing, uh, outlawing a political party or even outlawing an ideology is not something that we can do, not a pathway we want to go down. In fact, what we see right now is the progressives and people on the left are trying to, in a sense, outlaw conservatism on campuses and they say that it's hate speech, and they're expanding the definition of hate speech to give them legal cover for censorship and for um, blocking speech and ideas that they don't like. So we, we do not want to respond by finding leftist uh, radical speech that we disapprove of. In fact, I'll take uh, a, a page from John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, a political science or philosophical uh, political philosophy work that I mentioned to you last week on the show. And that is that it's better for people to hear these bad, dangerous, rotten ideas so that they understand what is believed by some. And then they can hear the better argument from others. This is the very basis of the marketplace of ideas. Um, but yeah, the American Communist Party has, I think, a few thousand adherents. It does go for the Democrat every year, though. The much bigger problem for me, other than the censorship issue and the First Amendment uh, rights of free expression and free association... A much bigger issue for me, um, or an, another big issue for me, I should say, uh, is that uh, the leftists that were pro-communist in the, that were willing to be openly pro-communist in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, have learned that that's not effective for them. But they have, I dare I say, infiltrated, dissolved into, been subsumed into, the uh, modern Democrat Party. Uh, what troubles me much more is that we have two political parties, two major political parties in this country, 
And listen, listen to the rhetoric of Elizabeth Warren on fat cats, and we need more government in charge, and we need, uh, we need to tax the rich, and they're scamming us, and they're doing all this terrible stuff, and we need to do more for workers. And you listen to Bernie Sanders, too, and the way they say it and how they—when Trump talks about it, he says, we'll make better deals, and we'll let you keep more of your money, and we're going to shrink government. That's different. When Now, whether he does that or not is a separate issue, but Warren and Sanders are saying, no, no, no. Government needs to have more power and more control to take more of your stuff to make things uh, better and make things more just, of course. And better, by the way, doesn't mean more prosperous. Better means more fair. And they get to determine what's fair. They get to determine what social justice is and therefore how to pursue social justice aims. Uh, But much of the rhetoric, I, I try to give you some of the works that uh, that I draw upon when I talk to you about all this, and whether it's uh, witnessed by Whitaker Chambers or The God That Failed, uh, compiled by Crossman, or, uh, you know, I mentioned Robert Conquest before and The Great Terror. Uh, a familiarity with communism is essential because you, not just the ideas behind it, but also the rhetoric, the terms used, are used today in many cases by the Democrats. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. A large group of Hollywood actors and Washington media They are gathered together for the White House Correspondents' Dinner without the President. I could not possibly be more thrilled than to be more than 100 miles away from Washington Swamp, spending my evening with all of you. Let's rate the media's 100 days. Should we do that? Should we do it? Media outlets like CNN and MSNBC are fake news. Fake news. If the media's job is to be honest and tell the truth, then I think we would all agree the media deserves a very, very big, fat, failing grade. So, uh, sorry for a second. I got locked down my own studio for a moment there. That was fun. Um, I hope the uh, that's that's quite an interesting little situation that's played out. And now I'm catching my breath because the door was locked. All right, Emily Zanotti is with us. Thank heavens, she's the political editor at Heat Street. Emily, good to have you. Good to be here. So let's talk a bit, shall we? First of all. <laughs> Sounds good. What has uh, what has been going on with the climate mar- the People's Climate March? Yeah, so for the umpteenth week in a row, we've had a major march in Washington D.C. It makes no sense. I mean, I think the same people keep showing up for these week after week. But on Saturday, we had a major march for the People's Climate March for global warming, jobs, and something else. I can't even remember. It was a big conglomeration of sort of quasi-socialist principles. They were there to help convince Donald Trump that they should save, he should save the environment, that he should 
invest all of his money, all of our money into ending industry, into closing off carbon emissions. And when they left, they left their own environmental disaster. So it really worked out well. Did you get a chance to check out any of what they were doing, by the way? Did you like I stumbled into a May Day protest today in Union Square. <laughs> did, you, did you see some of the shenanigans? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and it was. I didn't get to see Leonardo DiCaprio though, unfortunately. I heard he was there. Is that disappointing though? And what's with the hat that guy wears all the time? I don't know. It's the weirdest like fashion idea. But he did used to have a man bun, so I feel like this is, I guess, a step up from the man bun. A man bun is okay if you have a katana sword, but short of that, right. I'm not sure the man bun is really, you know, unless unless you're somebody in. Uh, who, who adheres to a code of uh, Bushido. I'm not sure of the man, but, right. but, you know, to each his own. I mean, I'm not exactly a style icon, so that's I, I'm, I'm the first to admit it. So I just put that out there. Uh, tell me a bit about the Philippine strongman Duterte and Trump and all the stuff that's going on there with Heat Street covering it. <laughs> sure. So over the weekend, Donald Trump and Rodrigo Duterte from the Philippines had a phone call about North Korea. And obviously North Korea has been dogging Donald Trump for a couple of weeks. They've been trading barbs back and forth and North Korea has been threatening to blow up California, which they're probably not going to be able to do anyway. But Donald Trump had a call with Duterte over the weekend and they said it was very friendly and he extended an invitation to Duterte to the White House. The only trouble is this guy in the Philippines has killed probably around 6,000 people in his quote-unquote war on drugs. He's kind of teetering on the edge of being a dictator. We call him a strong man. We couldn't really figure out what a good word for him was, authoritarian maybe. Uh, but people are a little bit concerned. The good news is, though, Duterte thinks it would ruin his reputation to come to the White House anyway. So it looks like he won't be making any vacations to Washington, D.C. Wow, that's... Uh... That's that's pretty that's pretty cold. Um, you also had Trump saying I, I, I was surprised. I got to be honest. With you, I was a little surprised by this one. Talking about Kim Jong Un, uh, the Donald had the following to say. People are saying, is he sane? I have no idea. I can tell you this. And a lot of people don't like when I say it. But he was a young man of 26 or 27 when he took over from his father, when his father died. He's dealing with, obviously, very tough people, in particular the generals and others. And at a very young age, he was able to assume power. A lot of people, I'm sure, tried to take that power away, whether it was his uncle or anybody else. And he was able to do it. So, obviously, he's a pretty smart cookie. But uh, we have a situation that we just cannot let. We cannot let what's been going on for a long period of years continue. Not not really what I would like the leader of the free world saying about the yeah, no. leader of the most unfree and oppressed totalitarian state on the planet. Right. You know, I mean, it is May Day and it is the celebration of communism today. And North Korea tonight, when the world is bathed in darkness, will see North Korea, the only country from space that you actually can't see because it's got no electricity. Right. Uh so Donald Trump is like, this is such a great idea. This guy is so great. His country is under his thumb. Everyone has the same haircut. This works really well. And I'm not so sure that's exactly the leadership model we should be striving for here in the U.S.
Yeah, I, I, you know, look, it's just the, the, the president here. It's not not as it was not his best. I think that it's not right. his best. Yeah. By the way, how many people? Uh, this is a total aside. But I know you're in Chicago, and we're just talking about Communism Day, aka May Day, um, International Workers Day, which is just a pleasant way of saying Communism Day. Uh, right. What? Uh, how many people in Chicago even you think know about the Haymarket massacre? Probably not many. And probably none of the 10,000 or so people who marched past my office this morning. <laughs> yeah, I would, assu- I would assume it's not something they're, they're well-versed in, but I'm just wondering if you had any, any take on that. By the way, um, you also have uh, Milo Yiannopoulos back on the scene here. What, what is Mr. Yiannopoulos up to, according to Heat Street? So Milo has been off the scene for a while. He basically disappeared after he was at Berkeley and Berkeley tried to burn down his own campus so they, he would not speak. And then he kind of went underground. We started to find out that he really didn't have the kind of funding that we thought he did. He A lot of allegations came out about him that he was kind of okay with kids dating adults. It was a little weird there for a second. Now he's back and he says he's gotten $12 million to create Milo Inc., which is going to be a multimedia company that has television shows and radio networks and personalities and comedians and artists and all sorts of people who are going to push political incorrectness. So we're not exactly sure where this funding comes from. So we're on a wait and see on this guy. Uh, $12 million to make TV. Uh, I, I could talk to Mr. Milo about this is actually not very much money. <laughs> so right? I don't know how I'm not, I don't know if, uh, that, I, I, at first I thought, wow, if we raised, if he raised that to start a website, I'd say, sh- you know, that's yeah, sure. Yeah. But to run a TV, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing it's digital shorts and they'll have some way of doing it, but okay. Um, he says he's hiring a bunch of YouTubers and turns out they're like 14, 15 years old. So maybe they don't expect a lot of money. I, I, I'm really not sure, honestly. Yeah, there, there are a few forms of uh, economic exploitation that are quite as, uh, as widespread as what you see with a lot of aspiring journalists in the digital era, yeah. where it's now like everything is, everyone wants work for free now, and it's like, hey, you know, just, just do it. You know, you're paying your dues. Like, well, if I'm paying my dues, can I get paid at some point? But there's, there's, a, there's a lot of like, come work for me for free. I'll give you a platform, and people start to realize, uh, I, I got bills, I got bills to pay too. Actually, it's not, it's not just the platform that's fun. Right. Yeah, I have to eat. I mean, I love being a reporter. I love being a journalist. I like being out there. I love doing radio, but I still have to eat too. Yeah, me, me too. And that is a thing that uh, is important for all of us. By the way, what do you think about healthcare? Is it going to happen this week? doubt it. I haven't seen much of anything going around the Hill. We've got our sources in Congress, and we haven't really heard much of anything. And the, but the president did say today that he has talked to Paul Ryan. He has talked to Mitch McConnell. He has put demands on the table to save things like pre-existing conditions. And we did have a late-in-the-day rumor that the Republicans say they're one vote away from the potential of actually passing a health care bill. So it could happen. It would be a miracle. But if anyone can deliver it, I guess St. Trump would be able to deliver it on his 100th day in office. All right. Emily Zanotti, political editor at Heat Street. Her latest at Heat Street or HeatST.com. Emily, thank you so much for joining us as always. Talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks.
And uh, team, thank you for staying with me, especially as I was furiously pounding on the door to get into the studio because we had a little uh, electronic entry malfunction before. Uh, so I have no idea. They, they played some clips. I have no idea what the clips were. It could have been Kenny G's uh, greatest hits at the top of the show, or top of the hour, rather. I have no idea, just to let you know. So I had to come. I came flying into the room and had to catch my breath for a minute because I was straight up pounding on the door. Um, this was sort of like Wayne in Wayne's World 2 when he's on the uh, at the back of the church. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Kind of a random reference there, but we can... We can let that one go for now. Um, I want to hear from all of you, 844-900-2825. Let's talk also about the Brett Stevens climate change column that got liberals so upset. Oh, my gosh. That and more in a few. Welcome back, team. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Appreciate it. Lori in New Jersey on the iHeart app. What's up, Lori? Buckman, you are the man. So glad to be talking to you again. Hope you had a great time away with your lovely one. Thank you. It was she is lovely. Unfortunately, the weather was not, but we had a great time. Well, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, it, it, Lori, it was it was three days of basically continuous rain, and all of the very friendly oh. and, and charming locals being like, "It never rains like this this time of year." <laughs> I'm like, "Thanks, guys." The well, first time in I this country. A, I remember spending Christmas many years ago on Boracay outside in the Philippines in the very similar situation. We actually had a typhoon, but anyway, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I hear you. So, so what's up? Let's talk um, budgets. Yeah. What I wanted to talk about was, I mean, I think I spent this morning ta- uh, listening to a radio program you and I are both intimately familiar with that was extremely upsetting to me. The listeners were being asked to grade the president on his first 100 days and uh, give their reasons for their grades. And I think that, that, first of all, it's an entirely unfair exercise because 100 days is nothing, right? Secondly, I think people have to get some perspective on this budget issue. But I, I, and, and I challenge Trump. I do think – so I was, not, I was not a never-Trumper, but we were cruise people. When, when Trump became the nominee, because of the Supreme Court, we voted for Trump. But now, okay – now, because of the way Trump is being treated, we are both like, we're voting for Trump. You know, Trump has our full support simply because he's being the, the media. In fact, to some extent, both sides of the media are attempting to kick Trump to the curb. And I think some of this, maybe a lot of it, is due to a lack of understanding in academia and, and journalistic circles about how business works. Now, I'm not suggesting Trump can pull some kind of magic rabbit out of his hat. He's made a a debacle out of this uh, continuing resolution. What I am hopeful about as a person who lives in the business world, I'm hopeful he will have learned something here. We need to look forward to 2018, and, and in all candor, any Republican member of the House in a district that Trump carried needs to be primaried if they do not support the president now in his budget initiatives. And I think the Trump campaign is savvy enough to understand that, but this is a long-term game. This is not a short-term game. Why do you think, Lori, they believe that things will be better off in September than they are now, though? How, how is that a, a, a preferable battlefield for the Republicans when they come with the same artillery they have right now. Okay, you're saying it's not. It's not. It's not. It's a, it's 
it's Trump discovering that there. Remember, the Republican Party, many, many members of the Republican Party were horrified that Trump was the nominee. Yeah. It, it's a misapprehension to, to think now that just because he was the nominee and then he became the president, that now all Republicans are going to gather behind him and support him fully. I mean, you tell me, Buck, why is it that I don't know how many you might know off the top of your head. How many times did the Republican House vote to repeal Obamacare without any of this? Like, well, we need to keep this piece and need to keep that piece. How many yeah, it was like 60 or 70. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Right. But now, but now suddenly they won't. Why is that? It's not because the issue is any different. Well, I believe but, but, it's because they are resentful of the president. Lori, I, I, I think, then, and this is where I, I'm going into a, I'm going into a kind of a, a scary political place here. But I know right <laughs> now that that one of the answers I'd get is, well, Buck, you know, to really bring about uh, profound legislative change, you need a supermajority. One, the response to that I have to, yeah, the response I have to that is, okay, so now, now it's just, they keep moving the, you know, it used to be just give us the House, the yeah. Senate, and the presidency, and we'll get everything done. Yeah. Now it's, oh no, we yeah. need super yeah. majorities in, in the House, the Senate, and the presidency, yeah. and then we'll get it done. Yeah. But yeah. even more than that, I do not, I do not believe that if these Republicans in the House and the Senate had the necessary numbers to ram through some of what we have already seen, I don't think they had the stomach to do it. Not all of them, but I think exactly. enough of them that they wouldn't go through with it. Exactly, which is why I say the Trump campaign, and I don't mean the administration, I do mean the campaign, needs to identify all the Republicans in districts that Trump carried last year who are not supporting him now, and those people, expletive deleted, need to be removed. We're, we have to drain the swamp. And I'm not talking about a wholesale, like, like uh, let's all fall at the feet of Trump and worship him. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we have people, so-called Republicans in office, who are not prepared to do the things their own constituents want That's to do. That's right. They're, they're backing off. on They said what they needed to, and, and it was pro-Trump and along with his policies, and they want to get elected, and, and now all of a sudden they're getting they're yeah. getting weak in the knees on this. By the way, and Lori Shields-High, great to talk to you from New Jersey. Thank you so much for, for calling in. Always a, always a pleasure. Um, uh, the, do the Democrats have this problem, everybody? We've, we've got memories. We know. No. Obama came into office. Were there, were there any Democrats who were like, oh, no, I, I, I just can't say what you will about them with, uh, with a, a, a Prussian military parade ground precision. The Democrats move as one on policy. It's not based in principle. It's based in a lust for power and the understanding of how to wield power. But they move as one. They don't have this holdout, holier than thou, or in the case of some Republicans, I think, you know, transactional view of their own interests versus the party's interests versus their donors' interests. They, I'm not saying that Democrats don't have that, but they understand that they will put that in a secondary position to the will of the party. Not the will of the people, the will of the party. Democrats move as a unit. It's one thing Republicans could learn from them. I'll say that for Democrats. Paul in Florida on the iHeart app. What's up, sir? Shields high, Buck. Shields Glad high. Hey, uh, just a couple things. The the uh, the Republicans used to actually accomplish a lot, even then when they were in the minority. 
uh, back in the 90s, Newt Gingrich um, did the contract with America, and we didn't have a Republican president. And uh, that was accomplished with a, along with Newt, with someone that really hasn't gotten a lot of publicity. I guess he, he was actually kind of persecuted for what he did. But the, the House whip, Tom DeLay, actually did a lot of work and had a lot of insight on how to organize and motivate Republicans to get them to vote for specific key agenda items. And uh, perhaps Trump might want to reach out to Newt and Tom DeLay and, and uh, gain some insight on how to manage the House Republicans, because uh, the Republicans didn't used to be so feckless. They used to be, in fact, you know, Tom DeLay's book is No, no Surrender, right? And uh, they, they did a lot of great things without having a lot of power. And uh, I think Trump might be able to leverage but, some But, you of know, Newt was at the head of a conservative— of a of a conservative political surge, and it it is still not entirely clear to me what uh, well Trump is at the head of Trumpism, of course, but how that ties in with conservatism and with the aspects of a conservative agenda that the tr- that the Trump administration promised, we are still finding out. I think, Paul, it's fair to say we are still finding out what exactly that means, um, and I'm hoping for good things, but we will see. And I will be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. We've got Elizabeth Harrington on the line, everybody. She is a staff writer for the Washington Free Beacon. Elizabeth, thanks for uh, giving us a call. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk first about uh, the Fed spending $13 million on vehicles it doesn't know it needs. What's going on here at FreeBeacon.com? Yeah, so this was a government accountability office report, and that's one of the good watchdog groups that kind of goes through and keeps an eye on everything we're spending money on. And so this report was kind of going through all the major uh, agencies that we spend billions of dollars a year on government cars. And a lot of it's law enforcement and typical stuff that uh, the government knows uh, it needs. But this report pointed out that a lot of these different agencies don't really have good inventory and they don't keep track of what cars it has, what car they have. And um, so this list here had about $13 million of cars that aren't being driven enough. So they're just sitting around because in order to justify the cost of the taxpayer, they need to at least drive. Usually it's like 10,000 miles per year for each agency. So you have these cars that are just sitting around. They don't really know uh, how many cars they have, and they added all this together, and it costs us $13 million a year. And tell me about the uh, NIH, uh, National Institute of Health, getting $2 billion uh, in increase under this budget deal. Is, is this a good thing? But I think people usually, the NIH is one of the few places where I know some conservatives are like, well, you know, maybe government research into curing diseases, especially like pandemic diseases, might not be such a bad thing. Right. But so here, the NIH is one of the easy targets for a lot of conservatives because there's a lot of wasteful uh, research spending that comes out of this agency. And so I think with this spending uh, omnibus bill, a lot of conservatives weren't too happy with some of the concessions in there. They feel like a lot of Democrats uh, were happy with what they got. They got Planned Parenthood funded. Uh, there's no border wall funding and stuff like that. And then on top of that, there's a $2 billion increase with the NIH on top of the $2 billion increase they got last year. And President Trump wants to slash the agency's funding by about $5 billion uh, next year. And, of course, Congress 
uh, decided to increase their funding. And of course, the NIH does a lot of good research. We all know this, but they also have a $32 billion budget. So there's lots of uh, opportunity there for bureaucrats to approve uh, some frivolous spending. And uh, so I think the $2 billion increase has made a, little, a lot of conservatives a little uneasy. Now tell me a bit about the uh, the. This is from last week, I know, and I mentioned it on air, and I saw your piece on this at FreeBeacon.com that Trump has asked for a review of Obama's half a billion acre land grab. CNN called this controversial. Before you you <laughs> tell us about the response and media to what Trump has done, tell everybody what President Obama did when it comes to declaring lands to be federal land. Right. So President Obama, over his eight years, used uh, these presidential proclamations uh, to designate monuments. And he did this uh, time and time again. He did them for all sorts of things. There was the first ever LGBT monument. Uh, But a lot of them are monuments that already exist, but he's expanding them. So it puts them in the control, the purview of the federal government. And we're talking millions and millions of acres. And it added up to a half a billion. And a lot of these moves he did in his last four weeks uh, in office. And so what happened was they had administrative officials telegraphing that actually we're doing this. We're going to grab up millions and millions of more land uh, to save President Obama's environmental legacy. And they said this is what they were doing. That's what he did in the final weeks of office. And so then Trump comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should review some of these monuments. Uh, designations. And then all of a sudden, the media is crying that it's controversial and a crazy thing for Trump to do just to simply review these monument de- declarations. It seems like President Obama was taking a lot, taking a lot of land to the hands of the federal government. So a review wouldn't wouldn't be all that strange. Uh, but does this tie into the uh, New York Times was, was writing a, or wrote a piece earlier today about how there's an obscure rule that Trump used that if something is within 60 days of a new administration, or is that was that all beyond the purview of the land deal? That essentially you can reverse something if it's within a certain time frame of the previous administration, their regulatory orders, or is this totally separate from that? Right. This is separate. Um, that was the Congressional Review Act, which Trump is using to basically roll back regula- regulatory actions. So any final rule that had been pushed through by the Obama administration in the final weeks of the presidency, Uh, Congress, they can use this obscure law to uh, review any of those regulations and uh, reverse a lot of them. So they've really been uh, tackling regulations that way. But the land uh, grab thing was it required Trump to sign a new executive action, a new executive order that simply directs uh, the uh, Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke to review all of these. And then once he submits a review uh, of all these monuments and land designations, then uh, Trump can review it. And then he will, uh, Zinke will either recommend that they roll back some of these, he'll say some are okay, or maybe he'll say we'll get rid of this monument altogether. Elizabeth Harrington is a staff writer for the Washington Free Beacon. You can check out her latest at freebeacon.com. Elizabeth, thank you for making some time for us. We appreciate it. Thanks, you bet. Uh, Spicer, I missed a Spicer press conference today. Spicer was out there doing his thing, spicy, 
And he says, he said two things that I wanted to just touch on before we uh, hit a break and then close out the show strong, as we always do. Close out strong. Um, first, he said that the wall will, in fact, be built. Well, make no mistake, the wall is going to be built. The president has made it very clear. Uh, we have five months left in this fiscal year. Um, we're getting $1.52 billion for border security. There's a lot that can be done with that. We've got a lot of things that happen before the wall is built in terms of planning, technology, gates. Um, there's a lot of things that can, that can do to prepare, uh, prepare for, for that wall being constructed. Uh, yeah, I want to know, again, answer to my question, and maybe it's an obvious answer. Maybe it's something that I am just missing, but why, uh, why will it be different in September than it is today? Democrats know how important the wall is, not just for a, when it comes to the fight over immigration and border security, but this was the, the promise. I, I, this was central to Trump's campaign the chance of build the wall build the wall and promises of mexico paying for it everyone you don't even have to have been paying much attention at all to the election and you would know if someone if someone walked around the street and said hey what do you remember about trump when he was running for president you know what was the one thing he talked about a lot i think you'd get a, a large number of respondents who would claim that or who would who would tell you that it was building the wall, that that was very important. So I'm glad to hear Spicer saying that the wall will be built. But I also think that we should all in our own way, those of us who support Trump but are not willing to just say everything he does is great, we should all be, be willing to establish in our heads some sense of what is the timeline for, okay, now he's not just doing it. Because we're not there yet. I know that. But if we still don't have a wall in, and I think you should decide now, if you still don't have a wall in two years, and I mean funding for a wall, I mean, if nothing has been done on this, is that unacceptable? If you don't have a wall by the midterms, is that is that going to, and I mean for the people that think that Trump hasn't made any mistakes, it's just his critics are unable to see the full strategy. I would just want to know when when can we say okay this wall is not being built fast enough at least. I don't have an answer to that question. I just think it's a question that is worth uh being it is worth uh, folks keeping in mind. He also said uh that the healthcare bill is getting closer and well, you can listen to him say it. We're getting closer and closer every day, so I would assume that today we were closer than we were a week ago, um, but we're not there yet, uh, and that, that decision is going to be wholly within uh, the speaker, the majority leader, and the whip to, to, to let us know when they're going to open that vote up. All right. They're promising that there will be some action on this, uh, and we will have to see. Um, they are promising that it will happen. If it doesn't happen this time, if it gets pushed, if we're told, okay, we're not going to do health care, it turns out we're going to do taxes again. Is that a miss? Because if we are going to be constructive and if you're going to have efforts to not just educate fellow conservatives on this issue and talk about this, uh, talk about this among ourselves, uh, but to push congressmen to move one way or the other on this, to push the national conversation one way or another on this, we have to have some sense of what our political red lines are. 
And if if healthcare gets abandoned once again, is that just a strategic retreat or is that a failure? I think you should you should establish in your mind, and for each one of you listening, it may be different, but I think you should establish in your mind um, now uh, what those boundaries and what those benchmarks would be so that we can assess appropriately in our own way how this administration is doing going forward. Uh, I didn't talk about the White House White House Correspondents' Dinner because uh, I went years ago as a representative from the Blaze. I found it boring and self-indulgent and pompous and unfunny, and I thought the whole thing was just, I just didn't like it. Um, you know, it was not something that I ever wanted to go back to and have not been back to since. Uh, my understanding is they had a, a, an almost no-name, unknown uh, comedian who did very unfunny jokes about it's not I was gonna I, mean, I was gonna play some of them and say, look at how unfunny this is and but it just goes to show you, you know, the, the press does this stuff where they they all get together and they want to talk about how serious they are as journalists and they have some comedian who I mean look I saw it last year. Um I meaning I, I watched it on TV. Actually I think I was at CNN last year talking about it. And uh I was I was I was giving commentary on the journalists who are giving commentary. Uh, and it just wasn't good, and it wasn't funny, and it was, um, I'm sure this year there were nasty jokes made about Trump, and, you know, it just, the, they, the, the press forgets about all this stuff, when they go, why don't, why don't the American people trust us, why, is, why, I don't understand, why I think, well, it's because those who don't think these jokes are funny and don't appreciate the denigration of the president by assembled journalists who are supposedly there, to celebrate press freedom and to support press freedom. Um, the rest of us who don't buy into that rem- remember this and and see it for w- what it is and see their actions for what they are. I also, these days, on some of some of the, quote, most mainstream and supposedly downline journalists are just doing straight-up punditry all the time, and then they turn around and act all wounded when people are like, you're a Democrat partisan. I don't know how much more obvious you can get, but uh, something we'll be talking about a lot more. Uh Gotta hit a break. I will be right back, team. Stay with me. So it reached me uh, when I was on vacation as well. There was some uh, backlash to the, uh, well, not just to the hiring of Brett Stevens, but then also there was backlash to his first column, which was on climate change. And this is a, uh, a fantastic example of everything that is wrong with the uh, Democrat left in this country at the media at the at the at the elite level, uh, they you know the elitist level I should say uh, they are completely and utterly well humorless of course but also uh, act like a bunch of little Stalinists when it comes to certain parts of doctrine and certain aspects of. Uh, Democrat ideology. And climate change is, as I always say, it's a religious belief for people who think they're too smart for religion. Uh, Stephen's column, now he's a New Times columnist. He used to write for the Wall Street Journal. I like some of his some of his pieces I've read I like, some of them I didn't like. Of, you know, he's a columnist. I'm sure that's true of uh, any number of people. And, you know, he could, so fine. He goes to the New York Times. Um, but there was this whole movement to show your cancellation. People were posting 
their cancellation of the New York Times for hire for the temerity of hiring a a uh, interventionist foreign policy conservative like Brett Stevens, who wrote a column on climate change that was not even he didn't even deny anything. It, it, the the basic thesis, and this is important because it it's a, a very uh, th- this is why I'm comfortable saying things like climate change advocates are they're they're pushing a an emotional belief as policy under the guise of science because when you see what they have argued in the past and how they respond to good faith argument that's all you need to know you don't have to be a scientist to know that when someone lies to you and then tells you to shut up there's a problem when someone lies to you or or when someone is wrong and you say well you were wrong about that maybe we should readdress your level of certainty um he uh, or you know that that person then telling you you know you should just be quiet you're a you're the moral equivalent of a holocaust denier uh, which is what climate change denial is supposed to bring up in people's minds right a climate change denier a holocaust denier these terms are, are by no means accidental this is very much intentional but so the basis of of uh of his argument, of the Stevens argument, is, look, they've made projections before that were inaccurate, and even the most uh, revered climate change policy institutions, uh, you know, the United Nations, the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, asserts uncertainty in the numbers. And this is official. And they assert uncertainty, and so Stevens says, well, if you don't know if it's going to be you know, 0.1 or 3 degrees warming, that's actually an enormous swing and should affect the way and would have to affect the way that we address it and the urgency of addressing it. You're admitting that. So you're admitting uncertainty. So why do you pretend that you have all the answers? Why do you feign certainty? Why do you falsify certainty in uh, in opposition to the, the, the state and uncertainty of the movement? How, how do you... Oh, and I saw all these smarmy responses. People say, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, is gravity up for discussion and everything? And it's, well, no, but, you know, no one's, <laughs> no one sits around saying that they, uh, that they question gravity. There are real scientists. And they pretend that they're, they're, this is also where they go into the lie. They say there are no, sci- no reputable scientists. They'll say, well, what about Professor Richard Lindsay, an MIT chief uh, climatology professor? Uh, well, that's just MIT. That doesn't count. You know, they're not going to find a scientist from MIT or anywhere else who says there's no such thing as climate change, but they will find them who say that climate change is not what they say it is. And they respond to this with just, instead of we're right and let's convince people, they respond to this with rage. And Stephen's argument is not a new one. It's not even, he didn't even make it all that well, to be honest with you. It's an argument I've made in different ways here on the show. Countless other people have made on their shows or in writing. And yet the left just lost their mind. And here's why. Climate change is the place where they get, where there's the merger of their self-righteousness and their identity. Their identity as, as smart people. People that are climate change activists or believers or whatever you want to call them think it makes them better, smarter people. If they're wrong about that, it would unmoor their whole world. What else could they be wrong about? And so that's why they go into these spasms of rage and panic. 
Uh, please share today's show with some friends. We had a lot of interesting stuff uh, on Haymarket and communism and everything else, so it would be a good one to share. Pass the buck, as I say. Go to uh, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Check out that podcast. I'm with you every day this week. Until tomorrow, my friends, Shields High.